0: Well, it has been good to be together this evening. Uh, We've come together and we've sung songs of praise to our God for who he is and what he has done. And that is exactly what we are called to do in the 105th Psalm. And so if you have your Bible with you, would you open it up, please, and turn to Psalm 105, the 105th Psalm. And almost the entirety of our lesson will come from the 105th and 106th Psalms. Uh, At the end of the lesson, we'll turn to the book of Romans for just a little bit, but if you'll turn to Psalm 105, you will be ready to go for the lesson tonight. Every summer, I play in a golf tournament called the GPGA. That's the Gospel Preachers Golf Association. Um, And it's a bunch of preachers from all over the uh, country who come together and play golf for uh, three days, a couple of days where it is uh, stroke play, you're playing your own ball, uh, and then a third day where it's a scramble and everybody's together. And for years and years, uh, it's been divided into two categories, the preachers and the Christians. And, you know, that's kind of a little bit of a corny joke, you know, that you got the preachers and they don't fit under the Christian category. Uh, Through the years there have been some maybe who don't fit very well, but that's another story. Uh, We see that corny joke, uh, but there is some times where we think about preachers and the things that preachers talk about and the things that preachers argue about. And, And there are a lot of times where those are things that really Christians in the pew just don't care about very much. And there's a lot of wisdom in that. There have been foolish and unlearned questions that preachers have argued about and divided about. Um, And what I've tried to do through the years as I preach is I, I try to be mindful of that. And even though there are a bunch of preachers talking about something, that doesn't necessarily mean that people in the pew care about it or should really worry about it very much. But when those issues start to seep from the preacher category to the Christian category, uh, that's when I feel more compelled to say, okay, this is something that we should think about, this is something that we should talk about. And something that I've noticed over the past uh, number of months, maybe even the past couple of years, uh, where it's bled from the preacher category, preacher stuff to Christian stuff, is this, something that I want us to think about tonight the growing emphasis among Christians that we need to be willing to make biblical statements without any qualifiers. That we need to be willing to make biblical statements without any qualifiers. For example, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. I 100% agree with that statement, that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. But, there are a lot of people who say, well, we need to be willing to make that statement without any qualifiers. No need to qualify uh, how or to think about how or qualify and talk about the working of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit dwelling in us or, or what that looks like with Christ dwelling in us or God the Father dwelling in us. Just be willing to say the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Um, another example of that. We are saved by grace, and no need to qualify that with our need for obedience. We could just say we're saved by grace. Um, and I've often seen it accompanied with a question like, why can't we just say what the Bible says in a passage and leave it at that? Well, I, I think there is some wisdom in this um, in this way. Those are just two examples. And usually there's a real problem and imbalance that's being addressed when this idea comes up. Why can't we just say something without qualifiers? Uh, to illustrate what I really mean by this, I, I think a good example, do you remember the old Disney movie Aladdin? Remember that movie, Aladdin? And, and so Aladdin has the genie before him and he says, so you're saying that I can wish for any three things that I want. Uh, and the genie uh, goes into a person, an impersonation, I think it was William F. Buckley or somebody that none of us think about or know anymore, and he says, well, there are a p- few provisos that go with that, and remember the three provisos? Uh, let's see if I can remember the three provisos. You can't wish for more wishes, you can't wish for somebody to fall in love, and you can't ask for somebody to be raised from the dead. Well, the statement is true, Right? you have three wishes and you can wish for anything you want, but there are three qualifiers that go along with that. And what I see a lot in the Bible is that we find statements that are true, but they're true within a context, and the biblical writers often make qualifiers. But again, I think this idea of, well, we need to be willing to make these biblical statements, they're addressing something. Maybe with the Holy Spirit, It's addressing that if we ignore and avoid the Holy Spirit and only talk about the Word of God, that's scripturally imbalanced. Or if we talk about our obedience and only give lip service to God's grace, that's scripturally imbalanced. And it can lead to all sorts of false beliefs, some of which will endanger our souls. And there's also legitimacy to the idea addressed by this line of thinking that We shouldn't feel the need to constantly run to another passage to explain or to explain away the clear teaching of the passage where we are. I know, of course, that the Bible is its own best commentary. And we should use the Bible to interpret the Bible. And the sum of God's word is truth, Psalm 119 and verse 160 tells us. But the thing is, we don't normally need to do that. We don't normally need to run to another passage in another book in order to explain what it is that the passage where we are is saying. Because the biblical writers make qualifiers to their statements all the time. Um, And if you're still with me, that's a big point that I want us to see tonight. The biblical writers make qualifiers to what they're saying in the same context all the time. Where they basically say, now, don't misunderstand me by saying that I'm not saying this. Or, now by this statement that I've made, by that I mean this. Or, let me explain what I've just said a little bit more to avoid any confusion that might come about because of my statement. In Paul's case, specifically, we think about the Apostle Paul and his writings in the New Testament. I mean, sometimes the Apostle Paul will make a statement, and then he'll spend a whole chapter in an aside saying, let me explain what I mean by this statement I've just said. And he's doing that so that his statement is not misapplied or misunderstood. And I want to illustrate this concept tonight in the Psalms with the idea of God's grace and our obedience, or if you prefer, God's working and our working. And our lesson tonight is entitled Psalm 105 and 106, and the wisdom of qualifying statements. These kind of statements where we say, this is what God's word says, and by that, this is what that means. Everybody following? We see where we're going with this? So if you're in Psalm 105, we can see uh, what this means. Psalm 105 and 106 are the last two psalms in book four of the books of Psalms. They're both historical psalms. And Psalm 105 begins this way. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing psalms to him. Talk of all his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face evermore. Remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O seed of Abraham his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones." So verses one through six of Psalm 105, call upon us to praise God, to give thanks to God, to sing to God, to talk of all His wondrous works. Um, that's what we've done tonight, right? We sang uh, number 22 in our songbook, and it says, "Call on His name with thanksgiving, Yes, joyously praise His name in song. Through love he authored our salvation through love He did give his son. And that's just one example of all of the wondrous deeds and works that God has done for us, for us, his children. And so, that's exactly what the psalmist does. In verses 7 through 44 of this psalm, he goes through many of the wondrous works and acts, the marvelous works which God has done for his people. And this is not an exhaustive list of all of God's wonderful acts, The psalmist takes us through a condensed history of the people of Israel, and he is emphasizing God's working and God's grace toward his people. And there's no negativity toward the people. There is very little talk about what God's people did, good or bad. Instead, the focus is very clearly on what God has done for them. This is a psalm about God's grace. And so let's read together, beginning in verse 7. I I know this is a long reading, uh, but I'm going to give it back to you a little bit because we're not going to go to a lot of other places. We're just going to look right here in Psalm 104, and I want us to see how he describes God's wondrous acts, what God has done for the people of Israel by his grace in the time of this psalmist. Praise God. Why? He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word which he commanded for a thousand generations. Uh, Some have suggested that is 30,000 years. It's a long time. A thousand generations. The covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan... As the allotment of your inheritance, when they were few in number, indeed very few, and strangers in it. So God, by his grace and working, made these promises that this land was going to belong to the family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And even when they were strangers in that land, even when they didn't own any of that land, those promises were made that I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do it by my power and by my might. Verse 13, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no one to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sakes, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. Moreover, he called for a famine in the land. He destroyed all the provision of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave They hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in irons. Until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. So in Joseph's weakness, the power of God's might and working was clearly seen. That God was the one who did this, working through Joseph to bring about his people alive during the time of the famine that went through the whole land. So, verse 20: The king sent and released him, the ruler of the people let him go free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions, to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders. Israel also came into Egypt, and Jacob dwelt in the land of Ham. He increased his people greatly. Who's the he? It's God. This is God working in all of these verses. God is doing this and made them stronger than their enemies. It was God who did this according to His plan and His providence. He turned their heart to hate His people, to deal craftily with His servants. So what does He do? Verse 26, He sent Moses His servant and Aaron whom He had chosen. They performed His signs among them and wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made it dark. And they did not rebel against his word. He turned their waters into blood and killed their fish. Their land abounded with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and lice in all their territory. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire for their land. He struck their vines also and their fig trees and splintered the trees of their territory. He spoke, and locusts came, young locusts without number and ate up all the vegetation in their land, and devoured the fruit of their ground. He also destroyed all the firstborn in their land, the first of all their strength. He also brought them out with silver and gold, and there was, no, there was none feeble among his tribes. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear of them had fallen upon them. He spread a cloud for a covering, and fire to give light in the night. The people asked, and he brought quail and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It ran in the dry places like a river. So God's, God's power, God's blessings are on full display with the plagues he sent on Egypt and the blessings that he gave them in the wilderness. Keep reading, verse 42. For he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. God is faithful. He brought out his people with joy, his chosen ones with gladness. He gave them the lands of the Gentiles, and they inherited the labor of the nations. Now maybe you're familiar with all of these Old Testament stories. Maybe you're not. But this is a good summation of the things that happened from entering into the promised land with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob until God brought them out and gave them the promised land out of Egypt. And this historical psalm walks the people of God through these events for this purpose. To tell them and to tell them clearly, God was the one who did this. You didn't do it. It wasn't by your might. It wasn't by your strength. It wasn't by your obedience. God was the one who ultimately did all of these things. That's grace. This is what God has done. And they didn't deserve it, and they couldn't do it themselves. And how does the psalmist end his psalm? That, so that, they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. So, the conclusion, obey. Praise God for everything that he's done by his grace and obey. Praise the Lord, or hallelujah, is the last word that we find in this psalm. And so the psalmist felt necessary to qualify all of his statements on grace by ending the psalm with one verse commanding obedience, that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. So what do we learn from this? What do we learn from this psalm? Well, number one, If the biblical writers felt the need to qualify their statements in order to avoid confusion, so should we. Maybe we ask the question, Um, I was talking to a a preacher friend of mine, he's he's a little bit younger than me, not a ton younger, but a little bit younger, he's not been preaching as long as I had, and and we were having a discussion about this very idea, and he said, well why Reagan, Why, why should I feel the need, if a statement is true, why should I feel the need to have a bunch of qualifying statements to go with that statement? And I said, so people aren't confused about what you're saying. So people don't get the wrong idea about what you're saying. Our job, our job as preachers, but all of us who proclaim the Word of God to others, our job is to try and communicate what we understand as clearly as possible. To communicate God's Word as clearly as possible. Now, are we going to be perfect in that? Of course not. But shouldn't we try, shouldn't we be trying to communicate to others as clearly as we possibly can what these things mean. And if the biblical writers felt the need to qualify their statements to say, now, this is not what I mean, this is what I mean, shouldn't we have that same sort of attitude? Can I hear your heads rattle on this one? Yeah, absolutely. If they did, inspired by the Holy Spirit, surely we should have that same kind of of attitude, So don't feel bad asking someone to explain what they mean when you're talking to someone about religious things. And don't get offended if somebody asks you, what do you mean by that? What do you really mean by that? Don't be offended by that. View that as a wonderful opportunity for greater understanding. And see the wisdom in explaining what you mean by biblical concepts and biblical statements. Our goal in all of this, in the end, Any conversation we have, any statement we make with somebody else, our goal in all of this is that we all might be brought closer to the truth so that we might know God better and serve God better. And that's what we need to be striving to do. And we should imitate the biblical writers in this. Number two, we should learn from Psalm 105 that we should not confuse equal necessity. Equal necessity of God's work and our work with equal magnitude. By that I mean, though two things are necessary, God's grace and our obedience, we should not fall into the trap of thinking somehow what I'm doing is in any way equal to what God has done. And the ratio that we find in Psalm 105 is a great reminder of this fact. Uh, A British theologian by Andrew Wilson. He's a contemporary. He's a guy who's around right now. I think maybe he's in his 40s. He's a really good thinker. Uh, we, We wouldn't agree on everything, but I appreciate his perspective, his love for truth. And he wrote of this psalm. Psalm 105 has 44 verses of what God did and only one of what we do. Indicatives outnumber imperatives 44 to 1. Now, if you're a little rusty on your verb moods, (laughs) indicatives state facts, right? Make statements, this is the way it is, while imperatives express commands or uh, desires of what you want others to do. And while this is not technically true, and I think Andrew knows that it's not technically true, um, verses 1 through 6, we see lots of those commands, right? Lots of those imperatives. Give thanks, call upon his name, make known, sing, talk, glory, so forth. Verses 1 through 6, we're commanded to do some things in praise to God. So while his statement is not technically true, the, the sentiment of what he's saying is well taken. There are 44 verses that are all about what God has done and how worthy he is of praise because of what he has done by his grace. And there is only one verse in the whole psalm right there at the very end about what we should do in response by obedience. And don't misunderstand me. It's not that God has done 44 times more for us than what we have done for him It's that God has done much more than 44 times more for us than what we could do for him. He has done so many things that we were absolutely incapable of doing for ourselves. Okay, that's the lesson tonight. Or, I should say, this was basically the lesson that I was thinking about and working on from early December uh, when I first... uh, got this thought uh, until the middle of this past week. Um, you knew that there had to be more than this, didn't you? I mean, you're looking at the time, that can't that can't be right. So this was going to be the lesson, and I had these points kind of laid out, um, and I was looking for a good time to preach it, and so uh, I had it on the calendar to preach this evening, and so I'm doing some reading and looking over it and thinking about it and contemplating, meditating on it. And I did something that uh, I should have done um, a long time ago, all along perhaps. I read Psalm 105. Now, I'd done that a few times, don't get me wrong. But then I kept reading. And I read Psalm 106. What comes after Psalm 105? Well, Psalm 106. Duh. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but what is Psalm 106 to Psalm 105? Psalm 106 is a sister or companion psalm to Psalm 105. Uh, We talk about Lufkin and Nacogdoches being sister cities because they're, I guess Tim doesn't do that based on the look on his face. When I moved here, people talked about Lufkin and Nacogdoches being sister cities. You know, maybe there's some rivalry there, there's some differences there, but they are roughly the same size. We're a little bigger. Uh, And uh, they're very close to one another. Uh, And they have similar kind of people. I'm not going to make any judgments on that. Well, these two psalms are sister psalms. They're companion psalms. They are both historical psalms, and they are very similar in a a lot of different ways. They are historical psalms that are focusing primarily on that time in the history of the people of God from the exodus of, of Egypt into the Promised Land. And so, a few things. Number one, Psalm 106 goes through the same basic time period and events as Psalm 105. Number two, it emphasizes the need to praise God, just like Psalm 105 does. Number three, it talks about what God has done for his people, just like Psalm 105. Number four, they both begin with this admonition, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. And number five, they end with the same ending, Hallelujah, or praise the Lord. And it is clear when the book of Psalms was assembled that these two Psalms were put together because they go together. So what do we learn from that? Um, Well, these two Psalms are very, very similar. But if you read Psalm 106, and we won't do that tonight, but I encourage you to do that on your own time. These two Psalms, emphasizing so many of the same things, have one very large difference. In Psalm 106, there is a much bigger emphasis on the dangers of disobedience. The dangers of disobedience in in a number of different forms. Now, we talked about in Psalm 105 how it doesn't even talk about the people very much at all. It doesn't talk about them doing things right or doing things wrong. It's all focused on God and what God was doing for them. But in Psalm 106, it takes these same basic time periods, and events, and it does talk about the people. It talks about their disobedience, and it talks about their obedience. Uh, If you look there in verse 7, it's about rebellion. Verses 13 through 15 are about helping or testing God. Verses 16 through 18 are about envy that comes from pride. Uh, Verses 19 through 23 are all about idolatry and putting other things above God. Verses 24 through 27 are about complaining and ingratitude, 28 through 31 are about the sin of immorality. 32 and 33 are about anger and rash speaking. Uh, 34 through uh, 39 are about partial obedience. And how God's wrath came upon his people because they were disobedient to his will. And so what we see in this psalm are all of these descriptions of obedience and disobedience. And what I think we find in Psalm 106 that talks much more about our need for obedience and our need for forgiveness when we sin and transgress God's law and God's will, what we find is a mirror image of Psalm 105. A psalm primarily about obedience that qualifies all of this obedience and disobedience with God's grace. Just a verse or two at the end that really emphasize God's grace in all of this. Let's read verses um, 43 through 45 of Psalm 106. So all these events, the disobedience of the people with some bright shining examples of obedience like Phineas, for example. And then the psalmist says this, 43. Many times he, God, delivered them, but they rebelled in their counsel. They were brought low for their iniquity. Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry. Notice verse 45. And for their sake, he remembered his covenant. He relented according to the multitude of his mercies. The only reason why these people made it through all this time with all of this disobedience was because of God's grace. Now, if we can acknowledge this about Psalm 106, it doesn't invalidate anything that we said a moment ago about Psalm 105. But it does, listen, it does qualify what the psalmist said in Psalm 105. The biblical authors cared deeply about the importance of obedience in response to God's grace. And, and maybe you would respi- some would reply to that and say, well, that's the Old Testament and that's true. But this comparison, Psalm 105 and one, Psalm 106, reminds me a lot of the first six chapters of the book of Romans. So turn to your New Testament to the book of Romans. Romans chapters 1 through 5 are all about God's grace and God's mercy in saving us by faith even when we were sinners, even when we were enemies of God, even when we didn't deserve it and didn't earn it, God still was able to save us by His grace. And then, um, well, let's just read a couple of examples of this. Let's read chapter 5 and verses 6 through 11. I mean, let this wash over you. Powerful, powerful words. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Now that's not referring to his sinless life, although that's true. It's talking about his resurrection, both Christ's resurrection from the dead uh, and the resurrection that we will have when we are justified by his blood. Verse 11, and not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And he goes on to describe uh, Adam and Christ and how there's death in Adam and life in Christ. Uh, We are all part of the family of Adam by our sin, and we can all be part of the family of Jesus by our faith. And he summarizes, I believe, those things in verses 20 and 21. Moreover, the law, the law of Moses, to which he refers throughout the first five chapters, Entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, and boy, sin did abound, we're studying from the Old Testament and all of the sins of these people, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's beautiful. And if Paul, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, left it there, I would be content to leave it there as well. But what does Paul do next? He qualifies this statement. Read with me beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6. This is the qualifier. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, if grace is abounding much more because sin is abounding, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he spends the rest of this chapter talking about what they had done in obedience, what they needed to continue to do in obedience, in order that they might be the slaves of righteousness that God had called them to be. So here's what I want you to ultimately take from all of this. Hopefully this wasn't just a bunch of preacher talk. I I hope it got beyond that to the people in the pews. What I want you to take from all of this, you do not have to accept the terms of the false dichotomy that you can either emphasize grace or you can emphasize obedience. You don't have to accept those terms. Or that in order to emphasize one, you have to de-emphasize the other. Brothers and sisters, we cannot emphasize God's grace enough. Amen? Amen. It is only by that grace that we will be saved. But you know what? I'm not sure that we can't emphasize obedience enough either. Sure, we can minimize one or the other, But both of those things should be shouted from the rooftops. One final qualifier in a sermon of qualifiers. Don't misunderstand me. In some places, somewhere along the way, and I'm not passing judgment on the preachers or the hearers, I'm just acknowledging this truth, this reality, that in some places, somewhere along the way, some Christians have gotten the wrong impression, and how discouraging must this be, that you're going to have to be perfect or almost perfect in order to go to heaven. And I reject that in the strongest terms that it's all on you and your works and your obedience. Let me state clearly, you can't earn your way into heaven, and God doesn't expect you to. The good news of the gospel is that he sent Jesus so that you wouldn't have to earn your own way, but you must simply submit to Jesus and his way. But the solution to that wrong idea, wherever it came from and however it became embedded in the minds and hearts of believers, and we can talk about the sources of that and why that came about perhaps, but wherever it came from, the solution to that wrong idea is to not, is not to, to talk about grace without mentioning obedience. All that does is lead to other wrong impressions that can be just as deadly to our souls. And so let's imitate the inspired writers, the inspired writers of both the Old and New Testaments, and talk boldly and openly about God's grace and what it has done for each one of us in our lives. Let us proclaim all that God has done and not be afraid to to talk about what God has done for me and my life. When the psalmist was talking about these things of history, you know whose history it was? It was his history. His people. And he praised his God for what he had done in bringing him to this point. And so too, when we talk about Jesus Christ and what he has done, that is our history. Because we wear his name. And I should not be ashamed to shout from the rooftops what God has done by His grace. And yet not be ashamed or afraid to qualify that with the need for our obedience. And at the same time, boldly, we should talk about our need for holiness and righteousness and obedience and how desperately needed is that message in a time and place where even those who wear the name of Christ are beginning to suggest that what you do doesn't matter. Where a new kind of Gnosticism has arisen that says, well, as long as you believe Jesus in your heart, then everything's going to be okay and you can live however you want. Now, is that a minority? Of course it is. Of course it is. But it is one that is growing among too many who wear Christ's name. So we need to boldly talk about our need for holiness and righteousness and obedience, but always qualify it by the power, beauty, An absolute necessity of God's grace, for which he should always be praised. We've praised him this evening for that very thing. We have praised him for what he has done in times past, for what he has done in his son. We have praised him for what he has done for us in making the way for our salvation. But perhaps there's someone here this evening who is not yet a Christian By the end of this evening, you could praise Him. You could praise Him for what He's done in your life in bringing about your salvation. And that glorying of God, that praising of God, that rejoicing will not be confined to you or even all of the people in this room. The angels in heaven will rejoice as well. If you are willing to come in humble submission, and do what God has called you to do to be saved by His grace. If you're subject to that call even this evening, won't you come now while together we stand and while we sing? Jesus is tenderly.